Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, for many, the return to outdoor concerts is a sign the pandemic is ending. Every show, someone comes up to me with tears. People are like, oh, okay, finally, the world, maybe we'll get back to normal. We'll hear more on that. Plus, we explore how listening to the sounds of nature can be good for your health. And we learn why you should consider native plants in your garden. That and more coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. The Memorial Day holiday is a day of remembrance set aside to honor the men and women who have died serving in the military. Memorial Day weekend is also considered the unofficial start to summer. Last year, the pandemic curtailed many of the usual gatherings we used to observe the holiday. But this year, with COVID restrictions loosening and more people vaccinated, lots of us are eagerly looking forward to a return to our favorite summer activities. And for many of us, that means being able to attend our favorite sporting events in person. With baseball season now in full swing, many Colorado fans are eagerly awaiting the annual All-Star Game when the top players from the National and American Leagues will face off at Coors Field in July. But as you might remember, the All-Star Game was not always set to take place in Denver. Back in April, Major League Baseball decided to pull the game from its original location in Atlanta in a stand against Georgia's new restrictive voting laws. This is not the first time the city of Denver has stood as an emblem for progressivism in the sport. Back in 1932, the city hosted baseball's first major integrated tournament that was 13 years before Jackie Robinson officially crossed the sport's color line. Back in February, Colorado Edition's Alana Schreiber spoke with Bob Kendrick, president of the Negro League Baseball Museum in Kansas City, about that truly groundbreaking event. Early 1930s Colorado wasn't exactly a beacon of hope for racial progress. The Ku Klux Klan sponsored multiple members of the state House and Senate, and redlining practices kept African Americans from moving into prosperous neighborhoods. Nor was Colorado a stronghold for baseball. The state had a couple of semi-pro teams. But the major leagues only extended as far west as St. Louis, and the Negro Leagues as far west as Kansas City. But in 1934, Oliver Marcel, or as he was better known, the Ghost, had an idea to put baseball on the map and integration on the mind in the Mountain West. The Louisiana-born former Negro League third baseman had recently moved to Denver, and when the Denver Post was gearing up for its annual semi-pro baseball tournament— He insisted that the Kansas City Monarchs, a Negro League team, receive an invitation. The one thing we know is that the message absolutely got to J.L. Wilkinson, who owned the Kansas City Monarchs. That's Bob Kendrick, president of the Negro League Baseball Museum in Kansas City. The Denver Post Tournament was the first organized baseball tournament to integrate, which allowed black teams in. Wilkinson would enter the Monarchs into the tournament, But Wilkinson also had some booking rights of the House of David that he also booked into the tournament. And again, the House of David was an all-white religious sect. And so they used baseball to spread their gospel, but they played a great role in black baseball as they would barnstorm all over the country playing with and against Negro League teams, most notably the Kansas City Monarchs. But Wilkinson hired Satchel Paige to play for the House of David in that tournament. Yes, 
that satchel page. The star pitcher who held a long career in the Negro Leagues before making his major league debut at the ripe young age of 42. To this day, he's remembered as one of the hardest throwing pitchers in the game. The house of David became integrated. But that particular team was likely one of the few teams that actually was a white team that had black players on it. But Wilkinson also had some ulterior motives. In Wilkie's mind, he not only could win first place prize money, but he could also get second place prize money if everything went as planned. And so whether it was the ghost that got them in, Wilkinson's plan played out just as he had set it out to. Not only was this the first major integrated baseball tournament in the U.S., but the only integrated team at the tournament walked away with first place. The House of David and the Kansas City Monarchs dominated the tournament and ended up playing against each other in the championship game where Satchel and the great Negro Leaguer Chet Brewer hook up in an epic duel and the House of David would win the game 2-1 to one before an overflow crowd there in Denver. And Wilkinson walks away with both first and second place money. Now, I don't think they got invited back again. But despite Wilkinson's antics, it was the skill of the Negro League players that made a lasting impact on the fans. I think it was an indication that here was a cross-section of the population that maybe we had not paid attention to that can play this game. And that era had its own stigma associated with it. Even as the Post was writing the story, they would refer to Page as the chocolate whiz bang. You know, so you still had some of that racial stuff, but what white fans got a chance to do is see this great black talent. And I think the reputation of these black ball players had preceded them anyway. People had heard about these players from the Negro League, but now they got a chance to see it for themselves. Colorado baseball historian Jay Sanford once said that Denver was the beginning of integration in baseball because Jackie Robinson certainly would not have integrated the league in 1947 had the Denver Post Tournament not done so in 1934. And according to Kendrick, he's right. It was setting the stage. It it really was. Number one, it proved that black and white players could play on the same field together. Number two, you could see for yourself how good these players were. This certainly started to set the stage for integration because as we move forward, there was a groundswell of support from white fans because people were recognizing there is a lot of talent in this league called the Negro League. And uh, this talent seems to be just as good, maybe better than the talent that was playing in the major leagues. So something's wrong here. And I do think that Denver was this great showcase to show that this was a possibility. It could happen. It took 13 more years before it finally happened at the major league level, but it certainly did happen. But within those 13 years, minor league teams across the country started to cross the color lines. Baseball's integration didn't start when Jackie Robinson first stepped up to the plate in Dodger Blue. It was a domino effect. And according to Kendrick... Those semi-pro teams that knocked down the first piece deserve a bit more credit. There were very few competitions then that was even open to blacks, no less an integrated team. And uh, they opened that door. They created that opportunity. And there was nothing semi about this House of David and certainly nothing semi about that Kansas City Monarch team. And they really did pull a fast one in that tournament. (laughs) But as for Oliver Marcel, or the ghost, the man who insisted the Denver Post integrate the tournament in the first place, 
life was not too kind. After the Little World series of the West, he worked a series of odd jobs and died in poverty in 1949. He was buried in Denver in an unmarked grave. It is a reflection of the challenge that we have with Negro League's history in general. It was never substantially documented in the pages of American history books. So American historians did us all a tremendous disservice. They kept this wonderful chapter of baseball and Americana away from us. So we don't know the story of legendary ball players like Oliver the Ghost Marcel, who should absolutely be in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. There are so many players who were part of the Negro Leagues that their stories still remain forgotten. The Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, and it's our job to make sure that they are remembered, but not only remembered, but celebrated. Celebrated for what they did to help change the game of baseball, but more importantly, what they did to help change this country for the better. And in 1991, one of those Negro League ballplayers was finally celebrated. The Colorado Rockies, along with the help of Louisiana's minor league Zephyrs, ceremoniously unveiled a new headstone dedicated to the man who championed baseball's first major integrated tournament. If you visit Denver's Riverside Cemetery today, you'll find a grave that reads, Oliver the Ghost Marcel brought professional black baseball to Colorado. That was our producer, Alana Schreiber, speaking with Bob Kendrick, president of the Negro League Baseball Museum in Kansas City. You can go more in-depth with this story at our website, KUNC.org. And the Colorado Rockies host the 2021 All-Star Game on July 13th. As mask mandates are dropping around the state and capacity restrictions at outdoor places like Coors Field and Red Rocks are also being loosened, that paves the way for live music events to continue their steady return. KUNC arts reporter Stacy Nick stopped at one venue in Lyons to find out how the return to normal feels and sounds. Planet Bluegrass in Lyons is synonymous with the music genre, but the venue has definitely had its share of ups and downs. A 500-year flood ripped through the town in 2013, submerging the venue and causing more than $2 million in damage. I guess I'm a little worn out, you know. I kind of forget about the flood a little bit. That's Planet Bluegrass president Craig Ferguson, who says at the time, it seemed like nothing could ever match the difficulty of that event. Then the pandemic hit. We had that flood in September and had that festival the upcoming summer. Uh, This plague was not quite as forgiving. For the first time in its 30-year history, the organization had to do the unfathomable, skip an entire festival season. But this spring, Planet Bluegrass, like other outdoor venues, has already returned in a big way, with 29 concerts before Memorial Day. And while the audiences have been smaller in order to follow health and safety guidelines, emotionally, Ferguson says these shows have been huge. Well, every show, someone comes up to me with tears about just how it makes them feel, and it's pretty easy to see the look on people's faces. It's real raw human experience. Uh, Most of it is joy. You feel like it's joy and relief and almost just a release. And people are like, oh, okay, finally, the world, maybe we'll get back to normal. Here's a start. And so Planet Bluegrass is just, it's sacred grounds for me. You know, it's the festival time where you can really cut loose. At a recent concert, Matthew Altman of Denver said normal for him was coming back to Planet Bluegrass. This will be my ninth show for the Springgrass series here at Planet Bluegrass. 
Yeah, can't get enough of it. I mean, it's such a beautiful venue. They've done such a good job of courting people off and separating people. And This is my first show back since the pandemic. Jeannie Schubert of Lakewood says the long-awaited return to live music has been worth it. So many of us have been through so much this year. And to be able to come back here and have this a new beginning back to, you know, back from the pandemic, it just means a whole lot, you know, and family and friends being together again. It just, uh, it's heartwarming. It's that way for the artists coming to play as well. I want to be like a bird or just a feather that you place into your hair or the wind that picks it up. After the show, Colorado singer-songwriter Bonnie Payne reminisced about her first live performance since the pandemic began. It was lovely. Just to see people together is really, really nice. I think it's important for us, and I know it's important for us now. And um, I felt so good to play music with other people. I've been playing music by myself for so long. Next up for the venue is Rocky Grass in July and Folks Fest in August. In the meantime, Craig Ferguson is preparing for the crown jewel of the season, the Telluride Bluegrass Festival in June. Surprisingly, Ferguson says the constant changes in safety precautions haven't been that stressful. You know, it should be, but it's not. I think we're all used to not knowing that we don't, I think, at least me, I feel like I don't expect to have it together. I don't, I don't think it's really realistic. That'll probably, as we get two or three weeks out, it'll probably change. And just a few days after this interview, things changed again when Governor Jared Polis lifted the state's mask mandate and social distancing requirements. He also said capacity limits and other health precautions, including at venues like Planet Bluegrass, will be phased out by June 1st. The Telluride Bluegrass Festival kicks off June 11th. Stacy Nick, KUNC Lions. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Even during the long months of pandemic shutdowns, one activity that was considered safe was getting outdoors to spend some time in nature. And according to some recent research from a team of scientists across North America and the National Park Service, listening to the sounds of nature is not only soothing, it can have positive impacts on our overall health. We spoke with two of those researchers in April about their work. Rachel Buxton, a postdoctoral researcher in the Department of Biology at Carleton University in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada, and George Wittemeyer, a professor at Colorado State University in the Department of Fish, Wildlife, and Conservation Biology. Now, you two and the rest of your team looked at the available body of research on the health outcomes of listening to natural sounds. Tell us about your team and what you found after meticulously studying all of this material. Our team was composed of researchers from three different universities, as well as scientists from the National Park Service. And we collected all available literature in a, in a systematic literature review to look at this growing body of evidence, looking at the health benefits of natural sounds on human health. We found about 36 different studies, and we put all of these studies together in what's called a meta-analysis, which 
basically analyzes all of the analyses from these different studies. This was important because a lot of these studies occurred in different countries, using different types of sounds, asking different questions. So um, we put them all together and, and what we found was fairly striking, striking positive health benefits from natural sounds. Patients or, or participants in these studies that listen to natural sounds had an increase on average of about 180% in health benefits when listening to natural sounds. And also, you know, big advantages for decreasing stress and annoyance. Rachel's really been driving this exciting research in our group for a long time. And uh, we've been looking at often the, the ecological impacts of human noises on ecological function or animal behavior or community composition. So sort of these questions about possibly, you know, aiming at the negative aspects of human noise on ecological functionality. And in relation to that work, it became clear that there are some really spectacular locations uh, both locally and, and, and across the National Park Service system that give visitors unique and, and really superb opportunities to immerse themselves in, in nature and, and particularly immerse themselves in the sounds of nature, the, the natural soundscape. Do we know why these particular sound waves, um, like from natural sources, impact our health positively? You can kind of think of it from an evolutionary perspective where humans are really good at picking up on signals of danger and signals of security. So if you think of an acoustic environment that is full of natural sounds, it's a pretty good indicator of a safe environment. What that allows humans to do is let our guard down and it allows for mental recuperation. Whereas if you think of the opposite, so an acoustic environment that's really silent, there's no natural sounds or, or very few, that's a pretty good indicator that something's potentially wrong. And what that initiates in humans is vigilance. It certainly does not allow for mental recuperation and it can actually lead to stress. Your research also involved a sort of public health and soundscape management component. And I thought this was interesting. You got recordings from a ton of different parks and analyzed the distribution of natural sounds and anthropogenic sounds or human-made sounds. And you found that urban parks and parks with high visitation, of course, had more human-made sounds. But there were still plenty of those good natural sounds that positively impact our health. Yeah, despite cl classic urban environments where you're inundated with human-made noise and there's sort of that deep drone that you get in metropolitan areas from all the activity, there's still a lot of sound islands or natural sound opportunities in green spaces that can offer people real benefits. And so one of the things that we wanted to highlight in this work was that these opportunities exist identifying them, valuing them, and protecting them is going to ultimately be of great benefit to society. And it should really be a key objective in resource management or, or landscape planning initiatives, especially in these urban areas. Linking that back to the results from our meta-analysis, we actually found a little bit of evidence that in groups that listen to natural sounds paired with traffic sounds and other human-made sounds, we actually found greater health benefits 
than in groups that just listen to the sounds of traffic. So that's kind of good news for those of us who live in cities where, you know, we go to these green spaces, we're still hearing traffic in the background. But as George mentioned, there's these sort of natural sound refuges where we're also hearing lots of natural sounds over top of that, we're still likely getting a lot of the health benefits from those natural sounds. You know, it sounds like in order to reap some of these health benefits, you don't necessarily need to find a area with pristine natural sounds. You could go over to just say a local park. Absolutely. Although, you know, really the best auditory situation for humans as far as health and well-being is, of course, a quiet acoustic environment that has lots of natural sounds. However, we're likely still getting these health benefits, even with noise involved. Rachel Buxton is with the Department of Biology at Carleton University in Ottawa, Ontario. George Wittemeyer is with the Department of Fish, Wildlife, and Conservation Biology at Colorado State University. Rachel and George, thank you for this. This was really interesting. Yeah, thanks again, Henry. It's been great. Thanks, Henry. Nothing quite spells the beginning of summer like a vibrant garden. And as May turns to June, those bulbs we planted months ago are finally cropping up into colorful flowers. But just because a plant might be lovely to look at doesn't mean it belongs in our high-altitude desert garden. Last month, we spoke with Denise Wilson, the marketing coordinator for the Colorado Native Plant Society, about which plants will be most successful and most helpful to our ecosystem. We started by asking her to explain what native plants are. Well, a plant's native if it has occurred naturally in a particular region or ecosystem without human intervention. Native plants are important because they've co-evolved with the other organisms that are present, such as mycorrhizal fungi, microbes in the soil, insects, pollinators, amphibians, reptiles, rodents, mammals, all the way up the food chain. Let's talk about some of the the dangers of non-native plants. And are there currently any problems with invasive plants in northern Colorado? So the danger in non-native plants lies in the disruption of that natural food web. Less food for pollinators, birds, animals, disrupting the insect life as well. They crowd out the native plants. They use the resources, the water, the space. Sometimes they actually produce secondary compounds that literally are toxic to native plants. I've heard that sometimes when we talk about native plants, we're not always Colorado-specific. We think of plants that might be native to the Midwest or to the East. Why does this happen? Why are plants that are native to other parts of the country prioritized over or confused with plants native to our environment? I think that's because so many Colorado folks here grew up in other areas of the country where there's significantly greater rainfall. Colorado has about 14 to 15 inches of rain per year. We are a high desert, but many people are enculturated with the English garden. But if you try and grow plants from that kind of an area, you're just causing yourself more work. You'll have to water, amend the soils, add fertilizers, which adds too many nitrates to our waterways. And then you get more weeds and then you have to add pesticides and herbicides. And those are toxic to the pollinators. What are some plants that are native to this area and anything that we should incorporate into our gardens this year? I think you'll recognize many of these names, yarrow, sage, milkweed, harebells, the bluebells, sunflowers, gay feather. Evening Primrose, Black-Eyed Susan, Goldenrod, Columbines. They're all beautiful, drought-hardy, cold-tolerant, 
and they grow in poor, well-drained, sandy soils like we have here in Colorado. It's the Rockies with decomposed granite. Can you kind of summarize for us the benefits of native plants, not only to our individual gardens, but to our ecosystems at large? Well, other people may look at it from an economic standpoint, but I look at it from an ecological standpoint in that all of those organisms depend one upon the other and they create a food chain continuous. And when we take a piece of Kentucky bluegrass lawn and instead put in native plants, then what we're doing is we're creating small contiguous patches of native plants and we're contributing to a sustaining corridor, creating landscapes for those pollinators. We're creating climate resilient areas. The insects are the foundation, of course, but by creating these landscapes, we're doing our bit for the earth. These patches cool the ground, they sequester carbon, they provide oxygen, all the good stuff we need to survive too. And it sounds like maybe that brings it back to the economic incentive that you touched on. The economic incentive here is conserving water and keeping down the invasives because those cost billions of dollars to control the invasives. And we don't want those. And we don't want the nitrate in the water system either. That's, you know, for Colorado, that's not a good thing. You want a plant that grew up here because those genes are the genes that are going to make it successful right here. Denise Wilson with the Colorado Native Plant Society, which advocates for the preservation of native plants in our ecosystems. Denise, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks. That's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.